So, Mark, yes, it is the season. Tis the season. This is the last of our contractually mandated Christmas episodes. And boy, is it a movie. It is a heck of a movie. I feel like this should satisfy our overlords at Square Apron because this should count as like three or four Christmas movies. So really, we've done seven or eight. This movie is like seven or eight Christmas movies. It really is. (laughs) So I think we have more than doubled our contractual obligation. Hopefully, Tony A. Anthony will stop mailing us threatening Nick Vallelonga Christmas CDs. (laughs) Patty Amore, coming soon to theaters. Okay, here's the thing. We're gonna see That's Amore if it ever comes out. I do not watch things illegally, but I cannot stomach giving that money movie, so that might be something I have to pirate. I'm not sure if we've ever talked about this on the podcast, but Nick, uh, Academy Award-winning screenwriter Nick Vallelonga... <laughs> Go wash your mouth out with soap. Writer of the film Green Book is working on his next project. It's a film called That's Amore, and it is a musical about a woman named Patty Amore trying to find love. Did you not know this, Rachel? No, this is terrible. <laughs> they announced it like the week after the Oscars. Oh, that's so upsetting. See, this is why. The week I'm... after, again, he won an Academy sure. Award. Spike Lee had to hand him an yes. Oscar. Oh, Spike oh. Lee was not happy about that oh. either. <laughs> um, This is why I don't follow movie news because I don't want to hear about things like this. Patty Amore. Why? Why Patty? Because it's uh, an Italian, Patricia. I don't know. I assume she will also fold an entire pizza and put it in her mouth. That sounds like. A good movie. If we you know, get... that's a thing that happens in Green Book. Oh. Viggo Mortensen folds up an entire huh. pizza. I have seen Green Book, and clearly I just tried to block out as much of it as possible, and the only parts I remember are extremely upsetting parts. As opposed to joyful parts, like Viggo Mortensen folding up a pizza and putting it in his mouth. I feel like we need more movies that celebrate Italian food. Have you ever seen the film Little Italy? I figured when I said that, that was the reference you would make. I no, was, I have not. I was also but, thinking about that reference. But I think, like, those are pizza parlors, right? Yeah. Where is my celebration of... Tagliatelle. You know, Tagliatelle, spaghetti, fusilli. My mom and I, one summer, when I was very bored, tried to write an operatic aria about fusilli, and it was great. And what I'm saying is, I think... Different kinds of pasta just need more exposure in film. I know this might sound bad, but I really can't get over the fact that Little Italy is set in Toronto's Little Italy. Like, I don't think it's explicitly set in Toronto. That's just where they filmed it. Like, I don't think it mentions a city by name. Okay. I only know the movie through How Did This Get Made? There was a debate Oh, I have this. seen the movie. I promise you, we will do it on this podcast oh, one Oh, God, no. It's on Netflix here, so if you're going to choose a time now when I don't have to pay for it, would be good. Yeah, I think that if we ever get another demand from Tony A. Anthony, it'll be for Little Italy. Uh, Emma Roberts does not look good with her hair dyed black. It's a weird look, and especially when she is paired with such a hottie as Hayden Christensen. I forgot it was him. I wonder if he talks about sand. No, he mostly talks about being Italian. <laughs> You know, just to throw it back to my roots on the podcast, the reason I knew who Hayden Christensen was is because in the Princess Diaries book series, everyone has a huge crush on him. And there are multiple entries where Mia's just writing about Hayden Christensen's abs, which I don't think I included in my book reports. I'm sorry. If that, that definitely was, did not turn up. I'm sorry. If that was a relevant detail that I, I said that they were really into Star Wars, but no, like it's like. Hayden Christensen's abs. How did you write so much in those <laughs> summaries and not mention that? They're very dense books. There's a lot to be said about them. He was pretty of the moment. 
Anyway, speaking of moments. Yeah, I was this moment is Christmas. I was watching you try and do that segue and it was painful. <laughs> so, Mark. <laughs> yep. <laughs> We're cutting all it's that. It's Christmas time. Yes. Let's keep it triple it. <laughs> I'll be very offended if you cut my talk about my fusilli aria. Can you sing some of it for us? I could. <laughs> all right, the mic is yours. Actually, I don't know if I can cuz I'm laughing too hard. Take a deep breath. <laughs> Nope, this isn't happening. Okay, I'm gonna try it. It's like, Fusili, I can't remember it, actually, as part of the problem. I don't I know, know, it sounds like you remember piano. it. Don't worry. I don't know what happens after the first Fusili. I know that there was a part in the middle where, um, you're, you know, you've been talking about Fusili. The only word was Fusili until in the middle of it, you suddenly go, Strawberry! So, <laughs> so you're singing this in Italian. Um, I'm guessing you're a fluent Italian speaker. Have you ever, while just speaking Italian, had somebody who didn't speak Italian fall in love with you and decide to marry you without ever being able to communicate with you in sentences? Yeah, that's how I met my husband. Oh, really? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. He because um, only speaks Swahili, though, uh, and I'm not a native Italian speaker, so then that was an interesting, like, it's going to be great because our kids are going to speak so many languages well because we're going to speak all of them to them, but yeah. Um, so it, you met a man who spoke Swahili. Only, only spoke to him in Italian, even though yes. you only learned Italian later and are a fluent Eng- native English speaker. And is mostly yeah. fluent in pasta. <laughs> I mean, have you seen that thing on Twitter of a guy made a Twitter account to show a woman how to make ravioli as like an attempt to woo her? No. Okay. I well, did actually see this. Yeah. I'm just saying that worked on me. So, I mean... He, Wait, that worked on you as in you this, are the woman who no, was no, wooed? No, 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 that my husband uh, did this. He just didn't really speak Italian, but said names of pasta to me because, you know, that's kind of universal. Like we say it in English, too. And that is how I fell in love with him. So, Will. Yes? In this movie, there's a lobster and many other animals. Is it the lobster? <laughs> yes. Is it Colin Farrell? <laughs> it's actually Colin Farrell as a lobster. At the birth of Christ. I mean, Christ. it wouldn't be surprising to see him in this movie. It wouldn't be surprising to see him at the birth of Christ either. True. And there, so anyway. So anyway, there's a menagerie of weird animals. And our guest wrote a Google note on the script saying that we should talk about what non-traditional animal should have been at the manger. Discuss. So again, yes, there's this Christmas pageant and Emma Thompson's daughter announces that she will be playing lobster number one. The first lobster. Right. Yeah. There is a second lobster. Somebody was cast as lobster number two. So the director, Richard Curtis, his daughter, Scarlett, plays lobster number two. (gasps) Really? Yeah. That's cute. There's also an octopus in the manger. The octopus is impressive. And Spider-Man. Well, of course. He's there to teach Jesus that with great power, like the power to turn water into wine, there must also come great responsibility. Of course. Is there a Marvel comic where Spider-Man is at the birth of Christ? Because honestly, it wouldn't be surprising. Honestly, Spider-Man would be kind of surprising if, say... Howard the Duck were there, that would not be surprising. Honestly. That's not even like me fishing for duck talk. Like genuinely, that would not surprise me. But also, is that your answer? You think Howard the Duck should have been at the manger? That's your non-traditional animal answer? I mean, that does kind of work. He would be terrible there. He's also a non-traditional animal. Exactly. Yeah. But like he would be smoking a bunch, which can't be good for a baby. And he would be pretty rude. (laughs) Honestly, if Howard the Duck is at like the birth of Christ... He's the dude who is like, no, you can't sleep anywhere. Go sleep with a bunch of cows. Like, he's if he's the there, he's he's the jerk innkeeper. Yeah. 
My answer for this, am I allowed to say it? Do guess go last? Does Mark go now. Just go for it. Sure. My answer is a bear because if you think about it, this baby has just been born and they're in a stable. So it's cold and you don't want babies to get really cold right after they're born and the bear could snuggle it and bears are like mammals and have maternal instincts also if this is the son of god presumably god's not gonna let the bear maul the baby so it would be good baby care have some like chest time with the bear also bears are great also that i mean so it is december but it is still bethlehem and i just googled it and the average temperature is 14 degrees celsius so i wouldn't worry too much about that baby no you put babies in like incubators after they're born sometimes what if the baby has jaundice that you need a blue light (laughs) the bear can have laser eyes (laughs) okay and again another (laughs) non-traditional animal it's better than a lobster okay so we've added howard the duck is the innkeeper (laughs) we've got a laser-eyed bear who may or may not be hibernating at this time of year mark what's your addition to the nativity I mean, I'm trying to step my game up if this bear shoots lasers from his eyes. But specifically lasers that help babies with jaundice. They're not like hot lasers. They're warm lasers. They're just vitamin D lasers. Exactly. Which we could all use. Yeah. I was just going to say no copy, but now I'm trying to think of his superpower. Does Howard the Duck have any superpowers? He can talk. He can do quack foo. Oh, quack foo. Right. Okay. He's a master of quack foo. Right. Maybe the o copy can just cough up. Baby food. Ooh, that's good. You can oh coffee. Oh coffee. Some baby food. Like little jars of Gerbers. I guess that means it has a time traveling intestine, which. Will the bear eat the little drummer boy? 100%. Because that's a pro for me. (laughs) Probably. But also, I'm thinking about um, if the oh coffee is coughing up baby food, like Gerber jars, then that's beneficial for Mary and Joseph because I'm guessing little glass jars like that could get sold for like. A pretty penny at that time. Oh, true. Once they clean them out. You know what? So that's a great power. <laughs> great responsibility. Uh, yep. <laughs> when you have your oh coffee, you have to make sure you don't saturate the market and ruin the economy. Yeah, but again, like, they're going to leave and go to Egypt for a while, right? And then they'll come back. So they're traveling around. They're not going to saturate any one market too much. Every time I hear about the Egypt part, I have forgotten it and am surprised. No matter how many times I hear about that. And every time I'm like, Jesus went to Egypt? I don't know why that part refuses to stick. How many books is it in? I'm not sure. At least one, I think. Yeah, that feels like one that would be in just one. Yep. Yeah. It's just Matthew. But I feel like it's a thing that I heard about a lot. Like, King Herod was killing all the babies, and so they had to go to Egypt. Also, I have this, like, very slight glimmer of a memory of watching some cartoon version of this and them going to Egypt, what, but it's it, such tales? a glimmer of a memory, I can't trust it. No, VeggieTales is mostly Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that way you can appeal to a Jewish market, too. Can you? No. They would, like, end with, like, verses from the New Testament, but the actual stories were mostly Old Testament. Or just weird parodies. Yeah, I must... Like, they did a Lord of the Rings one. And then the music video one with the classic, oh, where is my hairbrush? Oh, well, I mean, those are always great. Anyway, <laughs> we have gone from operas about pasta to VeggieTales, so just I think it's aria. time to start the episode. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is a Christmas-themed investigative podcast 
committed to examining the most pressing, urgent, important issues of our day. Namely, does Hollywood holiday romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot, or a one-scene flirtation, or frankly more than we can handle. We will dig in and see what's there. It's our mission. This Christmas section, as we said, we have been tasked with by our benevolent benefactors at Square Apron, the all-in-one platform that lets you build beautiful websites from the comfort of your own home. They'll mail you a box that has everything you need, and they mailed us a box that basically demanded we cover Christmas movies. So this week, we are rejoined by the queen of overcomplicated romances to talk about it, our good friend Rachel. Hello! So happy to be here. Clearly, I'm doing a great job so far of keeping this podcast at a reasonable length, as I always do when I'm a guest. This is probably going to be one of our longest episodes. It just has to be by necessity. There are too many romances. We haven't romances. actually said it, but we are covering the 2003 film Love Actually, written and directed by Richard Curtis, for which we will have to delve into, according to this script, eight romances. Which is not actually every plotline in the movie. No. And in fact, when Curtis originally wrote the script, he wrote it with 14 separate storylines. They filmed 12 of them. Jesus Christ. He cut two of those in the editing room, but by his count, there are 10 storylines in the movie. It's just too much. The two that he cut, one is about Emma Thompson's son, who is like a little turd and gets in trouble at school. And so there's like a scene where he gets in trouble and like his headmistress is yelling at him. And then that leads into another deleted plotline. These are the two that they filmed, where we see the headmistress go home And she is chatting with her partner. She's a lesbian. And then we see them like having a nice time, but the partner has a scarf on her head, which is code for she's dying because it's a movie. Nobody wears a scarf on their head unless they're about to die. Just like you only throw up if you're pregnant and a woman. Exactly. And so then we see her coughing in bed at night. And then we cut to the Christmas pageant and Emma Thompson is giving a speech like, ah, yes, headmistress, lovely to have you here. It's very brave. It's very brave of you to come. It's hard to weather loss at Christmas time. Your partner was really great. And you're like, oh, so she is now dead in the five minutes since we met her. That is the worst plot line I've ever heard. So this is on the DVD. There's like 40 minutes of deleted scenes on the DVD. And Richard Curtis introduces each scene. And he says in this one, he's like, I like the idea that you meet this headmistress and you're like, oh, she's a basic character type stern headmistress. And then you see like even she has this romance in her life. But he's like... It was pretty clunky, especially at the end, which is part of why we cut it. Even more of this movie should have been cut. I was, like, invested for a while, but it dragged and I lost interest. Okay, so we have the ten storylines that made it into the movie. If you had to cut one of them, what would it be? Um, I would cut Colin for sure. I don't understand it. It's not funny. It's just creepy and predatory. It's also the one that connects the least to everything else going on. Yeah, and then also, I really like Colin Firth. But that plotline is also disjointed and weird and could make this movie shorter because I think this movie is too long. Rachel, is there a plotline that you would cut or just leave it as is? Um, actually, I I don't know that there's a specific one that I would cut. I guess maybe Colin because I agree that it doesn't really fit with the rest of the movie. That said... I appreciate it because my theory of watching this movie, which will come up again when we do the rating, I'm sure, is that in order to enjoy it, or at least in order for me to enjoy it, you have to assume that you are watching something that takes place in a very similar universe to ours, but it is not the same universe. And I feel like Colin and his plotline 
casts a really good frame around that because it would never actually happen. And I think there's some stuff earlier on where you're kind of like, okay, this is a little weird. But then once that happens with him, you understand all the rules are out the door and that allows you to be able to enjoy what comes next a little more because Colin has made you give up on reality already. I think one of my main problems with that plotline is the movie is so clearly about love and relationships and actual emotions, and his plotline is just about finding women for sex. That's a really good point. We have this speech from Hugh Grant at the beginning about, like, love actually is all around, and... Oh, yeah, is I'm that not Hugh sure. Grant giving that speech? Yeah, that's, that's his I... inaugural speech as Prime Minister. I... Did not realize that. I always thought Jamie was the one talking there. Who's Jamie? Uh, Colin Firth. Oh. No, no, no. It's Hugh Grant. It's his inaugural speech as prime minister, which I... So I knew it was Hugh Grant. I didn't figure out what the speech was supposed to be until I watched Red Nose Day, actually. The 15-minute sequel they made for Red Nose Day in 2017. And there is a reference to his inaugural speech talking about how, like, love would triumph over everything. This puts such a different spin on the movie for me. I knew, wow. Yeah, I also knew it was Hugh Grant, but I figured they just chose him because he has a nice voice. He does. So, I mean, like, this is basically a retcon that establishes that it's his inaugural address. Yeah, I don't know if it's true canon. Well, it's written and directed by Richard Curtis. Did you know about this sequel, Mark? I did not. So, for Red Nose Day, the charity in the UK, which is actually co-created by Richard Curtis, in 2017, they reunited a ton of the cast to do an update on how they're all doing and also to promote Red Nose Day. And Hugh Grant's plotline in it is that he had eventually lost the majority and was no longer prime minister, but by the time of the video, he has just become prime minister again. And he talks about how, like, you know what? Things seem darker than they did in 2003, but good will still triumph. Love is still the most important thing. Ugh, what a 2017 mood. Um, I'm trying to think what else happens in that. Sam, Liam Neeson's kid, gets engaged with Joanna. What else happens? So is this just like I mean, a serious I thing? I but it'll ruin... Uh... Yeah, okay. So we'll talk about the sequel more at the end. Um, yeah, it was just like 15 minutes it aired during Red Nose Day. Red Nose Day is usually parodies, I thought. So I figured it would be more of a it's, comedy I mean, thing. It, it's both. Oh, it's it's bo- definitely a parody of itself. Yeah. Okay. It is like somewhat earnest, but also nonsense. The cards. Yeah, it leads with straight mockery. Okay. And then gets kind of earnest as it goes through. Yeah. So we have... As we've established, eight relationships to dissect today. Okay, but I, I do want to talk about this movie a bit more before we get into the romances. Okay. So we, if I, I may. mostly just saying we should probably pick up the base here. <laughs> uh, okay. So you and I had not seen this movie before. No, I had not. Rachel, you had, yes? Uh, Once or twice, by which I mean about a dozen times, maybe. Oh, okay. Yeah, my friends in undergrad during finals would normally pick a movie that was going to be our finals movie and we would just have it on in the background while we studied and ate takeout Chinese and this was my sophomore fall finals movie so we probably watched it two or three times then the next semester I was in France and I think I watched it four different times because it started out watching it with my host sister and then I mentioned it and somebody else wanted to watch it. So I watched it with them and mentioned it to somebody else. So then watched it with them. But I hadn't seen it since I had lived in London. So it was really nice to watch it and revisit it. And there were places where they were filming that I recognized, which was super exciting. I also did once give a presentation. This is the summer after my freshman year of college, gave a presentation about this movie in French. In a, I was 
uh, in France for the summer taking classes and I was in a literary analysis class, but we had to do a presentation about a film and analyze it. And I did this one. What was the thesis of your presentation? I have no idea. The reason we, it was a group presentation and the reason we picked this movie was because we said we all know it well enough that I had just watched it with my host family. So I'd seen it recently and everybody else in the group knew it well enough that we didn't have to do much work. And I think we kind of improvised. That sounds like Probably a was freshman something like year love French is project. All around. Yeah. yeah, like nobody took this class seriously. And we all spoke French well enough that it didn't really matter. <laughs> as long as you use the subjunctive on the fly when speaking, you are going to be fine. So Love Actually is the directorial debut of Richard Curtis, a man we have spoken about on this show many times and are maybe not done talking about. So his first movie, which we discussed a while ago, was The Tall Guy, which co-starred Emma Thompson, who is back in this one. I love her. It also co-starred Rowan Atkinson, also back in this one. He and Curtis had worked together on British comedy television for about a decade. And then he had major hits with Four Weddings and a Funeral, which at the time was the highest grossing UK film of all time. And then Notting Hill... And after that, he started working on a bunch of other scripts. And actually, the Hugh Grant and Colin Firth plotlines were both things he originally started developing as just scripts for separate movies. So, like, there would have been a movie about Colin Firth and this Portuguese housekeeper and a movie about Hugh Grant as prime minister falling in love with Natalie. I think both of those could have been more interesting as their own movies. And maybe better served because there'd be more time to develop those romances. Yeah. When he was working on these scripts, do you know, were they specifically for Hugh Grant and for Colin Firth? Or was he just working on these scripts? I don't believe so. He had, of course, worked with Hugh Grant before by this point. I don't think he had worked with Colin Firth. But, of course, they were both in another Richard Curtis movie, Bridget Jones's Diary. Good film. And a good film. So this movie is chock full of, of course, top tier British actors, but also many of them had worked with Richard Curtis already. It is November 9th, and there are still fireworks happening. Yay! <laughs> I mean, there you go. I believe you mean it's December 22nd or whatever day this episode comes out. I think it's the 23rd. Christmas is a Wednesday. Yeah, so the these 23rd. episodes are live. <laughs> yep, coming to you live. There definitely won't be an episode, like, a week from now where we complain about it being 90 degrees. <laughs> I mean, given... How climate change is going, it could be 90 degrees. Yeah, we definitely didn't record it in September. No, not at all. When it also should not be 90 degrees. I think that was the point of our discussion. Yeah. So anyway, Love Actually opened on November 7th. So very close to when we are recording this. November 7th, 2003, in sixth place in limited release originally on about 500 screens. It held at sixth when it opened wide the following week. Also opening... This same weekend were The Matrix Revolutions and Elf. So you have two movies that have sort of become holiday standards opening on the same day. I thought you meant The Matrix, and I was very confused for a second, but now I'm back on board. Yes. Um, Also ahead of Love Actually were Brother Bear, Scary Movie 3, and Radio. 2003. Yeah, that's very 2003. Movie ultimately grossed $59 million in the U.S., and $189 million internationally. And it was nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Picture Musical or Comedy, where it lost to Lost in Translation. Was that a comedy? I haven't seen it. I mean, it's a Golden Globe comedy. Yeah, it's true. So is The Martian. Yeah. Honestly, The Martian has jokes. It's just not a comedy. Like, comedy at the Golden Globes mostly means feel-good movie. It mostly means not specifically a drama. Yeah. Also nominated that year were Bend It Like Beckham, Big Fish, and Finding Nemo. And honestly, those five is a pretty strong category. Big year for Keira Knightley. Yeah, really. And uh, also, awards-wise, Bill Nighy won the BAFTA for Supporting Actor for this movie. 
for his performance as Billy Mack. And Emma Thompson was nominated but lost to Renee Zellweger in Cold Mountain. So, are we ready to dive in? I think we do have a lot to talk about. Yeah. So, I assume that we're going to spend the whole episode talking about BAFTA award-winning performance by Bill Nye as Billy Mack. Jokes! And his, and his love of himself. That one is one that did not make it into the points, which is heartbreaking because it is my favorite plot line. Yeah, Christmas is all around. I can recite the entire song and do frequently. How often is Fusili mentioned? In the song? Never. That's a bummer. But what if we took the song and replaced the word snow with Fusili? You could try it right now. Good luck scanning that. (laughs) You want me to? I kind of do. I feel it in my fingers. I feel it in my toes. Feel it in my toes. Christmas is all around us. And so the feeling grows. So the feeling grows. It's written in the wind. It's everywhere I go. So if you really love Christmas, come on and let it fusili. <laughs> See, this is a mistake because obviously fusili should have replaced I feel it. So it's fusili in my fingers, fusili in my toes. Ooh, that's good. It's the obvious answer. That's great. I don't want fusili in my toes though because I want to eat it. Anyway, I'm behind on three essays, so let's break down (laughs) these points. All right. Every week, we break down the romance of the movie we're discussing into five points that help us to summarize it. On this movie, we have failed, and we will have eight different romances that Rachel, as our Love Actually expert, will guide us through. So, Rachel, we've got a lot to talk about. Mark is behind on his essays. Let's take it away. Okay. Speed round. Number one, Colin. Farewell, failure. America, watch out. Here comes Colin Frizzle. And he's got a big knob. He is a food delivery boy. We see him flirting with a caterer by talking about how bad the food is. He comes back to his friend and says, English girls are too stuck up for me. I'm going to America. They'll love my cute accent. He leaves with a backpack full of condoms, as they call them in the UK. He gets to Milwaukee. He says to the taxi driver, take me to a bar. He orders a Budweiser. January Jones is sitting there and says, oh my goodness, are you from England? And he ends up going home with her, her three roommates, to all sleep in the same bed. And they are too poor to own pajamas. And so they are presumably all naked. And that's... This is a weird plot line. His entire plot line. So we first see Colin when he's like catering. And he tries flirting with who he thinks is another caterer by like trashing the food. He like puts it in his mouth and takes it out. He's like, ugh, this new chef is terrible. And it turns out that the person he thought was the new caterer was, was the new chef. And that scene was actually originally written for Four Weddings and a Funeral and got cut. This movie feels very recycled. It's a lot of products thrown in the mixer together. Yeah. Definitely got salad tongs more than a blender, though, because <laughs> these do not all mesh. <laughs> it's just kind of tossed. Richard Curtis, in a lot of like interviews, and there are a bunch of retrospectives for the 10th anniversary of this in 2013, where he was like, editing this was a nightmare. Yeah. Because you had to figure out when to cut back and forth between all of them and how to keep them all moving. He talked about, like, you could have edited this thing forever 
and it was exhausting to try to figure out. And like some things were dramatically rearranged from the script stage. But he's like, look, we had a Christmas release date. So at some point I just had to stop. That's very fair. I can imagine this would be a train wreck because you don't film in order. So you have no idea where each plot line intersects or anything. Right, and presumably he did, but then once you have the actual material, then you get a different sense of pacing and how the visual language fits together. Right. And so you do rearrange things. It's that idea that a movie isn't made until it's edited. Yeah. What do we think of the thesis that Colin posits that he may not do well with getting women in the UK, but he can do very well, very easily in the US because of his hot British accent? I mean, not that easily, but he's not wrong. And then I found, Mark, I don't know if you've experienced this. I found when I was abroad, people liked that I had an American accent. People say, oh, you're American, but no one has said I like your accent. Really? Interesting. I have had people say, I have no idea where in the U.S. you're from because my... Accent is very vague. And of course, you have a habit when you're in public over there of speaking in a transatlantic accent. Of course. I try and channel my best Kate Hepburn. As we all should. But yeah, I had people and I went on a couple dates when I was there and it was complimented. But I also once was on the bus talking on the phone to my mom. Other people on the bus were also talking on the phone, which is how I would decide whether it was acceptable to talk on the phone at the time. And I hung up and a man came up to me and he said are you American? And I said, yes. And he said, oh, well, that explains your accent because you're very nasally. And I wasn't sure how to take that. That's a weird thing to say to somebody at random. Yeah. I've had a lot of random people say things to me on public transportation here. Yesterday, a man on the bus asked if I was American. And I was just like, yes. And then he said, is this your girlfriend? And I laughed. (laughs) (laughs) Did you know the person he was referring to? I did. It was a friend, but she was not my girlfriend. (laughs) Really? I feel like it would be funnier if it was some stranger that you just happened to be sitting next to. No. And that's how you met your wife. (laughs) Yeah, and that's how we got together. If you're trying to woo her, I recommend you say the names of types of pasta to her. So I think we should keep moving. There's not really a resolution to Colin's romance. He just like presumably has sex with a bunch of Americans. He comes back. We see him in the final scene in the airport with Carla. In her cowboy hat. Oh, that's right. And he has brought, or with Harriet, and he's brought Carla for his friend. Who is Denise Richards, right? I believe so. And she walks up and kisses the friend on the mouth as her greeting. Not a good look for our country in this movie. No. (laughs) No, the Americans are just horny... Drinking harassers, people who yeah. can't afford PJs. Yeah, that because too. there is uh, Billy Bob Thornton is a sexually harasser. Yep. Yeah, we'll get there. But first, shall we move on to the next point? All right, point number two. Jack, played by Martin Freeman, and Judy, played by somebody. Okay, we can get the name. <laughs> I started with the Martin Freeman and regretted it. Judy is played by Joanna Page. Thank you. All I want for Christmas is you. Right. Thank you. Good. Good night. And this is a post-office Martin Freeman, so he's already been on one of the biggest comedies in BBC history. And they are film stand-ins, and at this time, they are standing in for a porn movie that's being made. You know what's actually wild, thinking about the Martin Freeman thing? Sorry to jump back. I'm pretty sure he has solo card billing, and Kira Knightley does not. Yeah. Which tells you... This is a very, very specific window where Martin Freeman is kind of more famous than Keira Knightley. It's so weird. I saw her name with other people on screen and I 
was taken aback. So this comes out after Curse of the Black Pearl, but it's like three months afterwards. So all the contracts for this would have been negotiated before that. Yeah, no one knew how big that movie would be, probably. No, it was massive. Yeah. So John and Judy have very lovely conversations while they are both naked simulating sex. And it was actually very entertaining to watch. Well, they're not naked at first. At first, like, she's just leaning against a pillar and he's, like, dry humping her so that they can get the lighting right. Yeah. But then, you know, you gotta see how the light reflects off the breast. I don't understand why he needed to massage her boobs because the lighting should be the same. Yeah, that... But he's very nice. He warms up his hands first because she's mentioned how cold it is. So, <laughs> so sweet. Such a high bar for men. Uh, well, our far comparison at this point is Colin. Then, yeah, that's yeah. pretty incredible. You know what? Uh, Fair. Fun fact about this plot line. The first time I watched Love Actually was my freshman year of college. And a friend of mine mentioned that when she would watch this with her movie, she has some sisters who are quite a bit older than she is so she was kind of young when she first started watching this and their mom would fast forward through all of these scenes and so she had only ever seen the final scene with the two of them which is that they go on a date and they have this very awkward cute goodbye on a stoop and kiss and she says all i want for christmas is you and he says right thank you And kind of turns and starts to walk away and then cheers. And she had only seen that scene. So she had no context for who they were. And the first time she watched it on her own, she realized like they have this entire story that she had just never seen because her mom deemed it inappropriate for a middle schooler. I mean, it kind of is. It is. Yeah. I understand where her mom is coming from. I do too. But I think at that point, skip the final scene with the two of them too, because that just makes it confusing. Yeah, this is a movie where you can so easily just lift out plot lines that you might as well, if you're cutting it, just cut it all. Especially that one because it's so loosely connected to the other ones. It's not like if you removed Alan Rickman, then a lot of the stories lose their connections to each other. John and Judy are not that closely tied. Right, all we know is that they're friends with... Oh, and in the final scene, it's been... I think they've known each other for a total of two months. We see that they've gotten engaged. Yep. And they're friends with... uh... Andrew Lincoln, I think. No, they're, they're friends, friends with, with somebody. The, um, the director who's friends with Colin, who owns yeah. the gallery, maybe? Yes. 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 Well, Colin doesn't own the gallery. It's no, the... not the director is friends with yes. Link, Andrew Lincoln, who owns the gallery. Yes. Okay. I spent so long yesterday staring at a chart on Wikipedia showing all of the connections between all these people, and it was like color-coded... And I still couldn't totally make sense of it. Yeah, it was a lot, that chart. So do we have anything more for John and Judy? I think they get together, right? Yeah, they get engaged. Yeah, they're engaged. Yeah. It's pretty long yeah. for a rom-com. A full two months. I know. Well, the, mo- well, we no, the movie takes place across five weeks. Yeah, but then they're... Right? And it's a month later in the final scene. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. So we don't know exactly when they got engaged. Yeah, the movie very clearly is like five weeks to Christmas, four weeks to Christmas, three weeks to Christmas. But it's never really clear within that window of how long anything takes. You just get a sense that, like, this is happening at some point in a one-week period. And there are also some things that happen in that one-week period that should take longer than a week, such as... Learning Portuguese. Point, um, learning how to play a musical instrument that you have never played before well enough to be in a school concert for it. So, I, Sam I will Joanne. say, the bar for heard school, school band? concerts is low, but the way the kid was playing drums does not match the length of time. Right. So, Sam is Liam Neeson's stepson. His mom just died. Like, the one of the first scenes we see is that they're at her funeral. 
Sam is played by Thomas Sangster, a.k.a. Jojen Reed on Game of Thrones. I thought it would be something worse. Worse than the total agony of being in love. Uh, no, you're right. Total agony. Uh, yeah, what I have in my notes, because I hadn't looked up people's names yet, was Game of Thrones Child and Joanna. He does look the same. Yeah. And so Liam Neeson is kind of trying to figure out what's going on with him because he's just, you know, shut up in his room. And he says at one point to his friend Emma Thompson, he could be shooting heroin into his eyeballs for all I know. And she says, well, he's only 11. And he says, okay, so just his veins. But he is really worried. My question is, all of this is happening presumably no more than three weeks four weeks after his mother died. Why is it weird that he's shutting himself in his room alone and not really wanting to talk to people? That seems like a very normal way that an 11-year-old boy might process grief. I think it is a normal thing, and I also think that it is understandable for Liam Neeson to like want to know more about what he's thinking and what he's doing and to be checking in with him. I agree, but I just, I feel like that specific detail is overblown a bit much, but it turns out he's not shutting himself in his room for drug purposes, it's because he is in love. He's too angsty. Liam Neeson says, aren't you a bit young? And Sam says, no. And Liam Neeson, who I think is named Daniel, says, well, I'm, I have to say I'm a little relieved. I thought it would be something worse. And Sam goes, worse than the total agony of being in love? And Liam Neeson's like, okay, you got me there. And he's in love with Joanna, who is someone in his class. She's played by Olivia Olsen, who, like Thomas Sangster, had a role in the Phineas and Ferb universe. She played Vanessa Doofenshmirtz, and Thomas Sangster played either Phineas or Ferb. I don't know which. I think it's Ferb, because Ferb has a British accent. There we go, then. Is that the kid? Yeah, he's the tall kid. So Liam Neeson decides he is going to be on a mission to help... Sam win over Joanna. Um, He's going to hitch his son. Yeah. And Sam is talking about how she's the coolest girl in school and everybody worships her because she's heaven. But then he finds out Joanna, who is American, is going back to the U.S. after the school Christmas concert. And he sees a video of Billy Mac playing his hit Christmas song, Christmas is All Around. And this is the one with all the, like, girls in Santa suits. They were called um, Billy's Video Vixens in the credits. It's based on the Addicted to Love music video. So he comes back to Liam Neeson and he says, I figured it out. Girls love musicians. I just need to play brilliantly at the Christmas Eve concert. And Liam Neeson says, that is such a fantastic idea. We're one week out right now. Only one problem. You don't play a musical instrument it's close to the sing street problem where he claims to have a band and then has to put together a band i will say i'm a little bit bummed that he decides to play something as cool as drums because it'd be much funnier to have a middle schooler who's like i can impress women by being a musician and then like starts playing clarinet that would be good you can write that but then where would the clarinet fit into the 10 year old's rendition of all i want for christmas is you you just add a clarinet solo that's the you wanted a clarinet. I like that. I'd listen to that. There's few things worse than hearing the clarinet played badly. <laughs> well, you just get a lot of honking. But Sam plays the drums very well, so presumably he would also play the clarinet very well. 
I don't think those are very similar skills. Well, more what I'm saying is he should not be able to play the drums as well as he does with five days of practice. But it's five days of hard work as shown by how annoyed Liam Neeson is. And the signs on his door that say, rhythm is my life and Ringo is king. Ugh. <laughs> Just ugh. <laughs> That's all I can say to We've that. We've had a lot of people shutting themselves in room with drums this fall with first Step Brothers and now this. I forgot about that part of Step Brothers. <laughs> that was, I think, the part that totally broke Mora. <laughs> I can imagine. Anyway. So he plays in the Christmas concert. He is doing the drum backup for Joanna singing a solo, All I Want for Christmas is You. And in the final All I Want for Christmas... When she says, is you, she points at Sam. (gasps) And he's so elated. And then she says, and you, and you, and you, and all of you, and is pointing at different people. And he worries, what if it wasn't actually me? And so he comes out, and Liam Neeson says, did you tell her? And he says, no. And Liam Neeson says, okay, well, you need to. We're going to Heathrow Airport. Let's go commit some felonies. Speaking of coming out, we should mention that Liam Neeson is a supportive dad who acknowledges that his son could be into a dude. Right. When um, Sam first says he's in love and they're working on the plan, Liam Neeson says, well, what is she or he like? And Sam goes very pointedly, she is the coolest girl in school. So they go to the airport. Joanna's already going through security. So Sam hops over some people and runs after her while being chased by all these airport security people. And rightfully so. Yes, yes. this is this movie is released in 2003 and explicitly a post 9/11 movie because the opening monologue of this feel good Christmas movie is talking like, ah, oh, yes, the people who were on the planes on 9/11 weren't thinking about hate; they were thinking about love. And it's like we are starting way too hard here. <laughs> yeah, it goes. In. So it's explicitly post 9-11, which means, like, we're in the UK, but, like, UK TSA is a thing. Yeah, but he is able to- And this is an international flight. She's going to the US. Correct. And he is able, it's difficult, but he is able to evade them and make it and sees Joanna and says, as the cops are coming up to him, oh, well, I've got to run. Or she turns around and says, Sam? And he says, you know my name? She says, of course I know your name. And it's the only name I've ever learned. <laughs> the cops are coming up and he says, oh, well, I've got to run. And then we see the cops bringing him back to Liam Neeson. He gives Liam Neeson a thumbs up. And then suddenly Joanna runs out and kisses him on the cheek. So did she miss her flight? Is she going to be able to get back through security given that her ticket has already been scanned? I'm very confused. Where is her mother? More importantly, there is a different version of this scene included in the deleted scenes. And in this one, it's based on a plot line that was cut from the movie. In which, what's the kid's name? Sam. Sam is really good at gymnastics. And this gets mentioned frequently. And it gets mentioned that, like, when he's depressed because of his being in love and not sure what to do about it, he also becomes bad at gymnastics. Like in Gaslight, where Ingrid Bergman becomes bad at singing because she's in love, Sam becomes bad at gymnastics. And now he's running through the airport and he's got to get to Joanna. And he starts using gymnastics and, like, leaping through the metal detector, doing a flip and, like, running around at one point to get down to her. Like, he's on a walkway and he has to get down to where she's going onto the plane. He, like, leaps and uses support beams as, like, bars and is doing flips on them to get down to her. And for some reason, they thought that was unnecessary. Cuts had to be made somewhere. Except it's the same scene, just with more flipping, as what we get 
in the real movie, he's just running. It's the same amount of time. Yeah, but instead there could have been flips. But I guess you would have to set it up earlier in the movie that he's this gymnastics Would nerd. you have? I feel like watching this movie at that point, so much absurdity has happened. You've already gone. If this kid just yeah, was if- doing flips, I would have said, oh, okay, sure. Yeah, I would have bought it. I would have been on like, board. Well, at this point, whatever. Yeah, yeah, you've thrown sense out the window. And then, of course, in Red Nose Day, actually, Liam Neeson is sitting on a bench by the river. And Sam shows up and is like, hey, surprise, Dad, I'm here. And they're chatting. And Liam Neeson's like, what's going on in your uh, in your love life? And Sam's like, well, I've only really ever been in love that one time. And that's what I'm here about. And then Joanna shows up and is like, Liam Neeson, I'd like to have your son's hand in marriage. So speaking of only being in love one time, they were watching Titanic, which one, an 11-year-old impressed he made it through that. I film. was so excited Two. because for a moment I got to watch Titanic. The other thing is it is played as if this is something that they do together regularly. Which is actually really cute. That the, like, the dad and his son watch Titanic and get really into the romance of it They're all. They're like acting it out. Yeah. I really liked that. Yes. But as I was saying, <laughs> the kid says that Kate and Leo only have each other. Like you can only be in love one no! time. No! And that's, that's that not notebook true nonsense. in the film Titanic because she is very happily in love with her husband and has several children. And cool adventures. Like she flies that plane. Yeah, so even Titanic disproves that notion. So that kid is, maybe he's fallen asleep by that point, honestly. He's also 11. Like, hopefully he figures it out. But yeah, he does make a big deal out of, you know, she's the one. Like, it's like you and mom, she's it. Is this a normal attitude for an 11-year-old boy to have? I I would Don't think so. (laughs) I don't think so. I had my own issues to deal with. Fair, but I can just imagine, like... I feel like it's a little bit more believable in terms of how the genders are socialized for an 11-year-old girl to be saying, you know, one true love, this is it, like, he is my everything, than an 11-year-old boy. And maybe that's just because I haven't interacted much with 11-year-old boys, but I feel like 11-year-old boys aren't interested in true love as much as, like, Spider-Man. When I was 11, I was reading a lot of Star Wars Expanded Universe novels, and they kept giving Luke Skywalker different love interests, so... This but was not also, something. This proves my point because you were more interested in Star Wars than you were in finding your one true love. Yeah. Yeah. I think that this house seems pretty liberal, though, because they are watching Titanic on repeat. So this kid is probably being raised to be a hopeless romantic. They're fair. Anyway. Should we keep going? Yeah. Let's move on to the love triangle that has the most important thing in this movie, which is Kira Knightley's velour midriff zip-up sweatshirt. Oh, I was going to talk about her weird denim hat. I was going to talk about how they apparently hate Benoffee Pie. This movie has, like, all of the fashion doesn't stand out except for everything Kira Knightley wears. It's a look. <laughs> Kira Knightley is rocking several looks. So let's start with the beginning of this, her wedding look. But you never talk to me. You always talk to Peter. You don't like me. I hope it's useful. Don't. Show it around too much. Needs a bit of editing. The One of the opening scenes is her wedding. She's she getting has, married to Chiwetel Ejiofor. Um, she has feathers in her hair. She has feathers around her neckline. And we first see Peter and I forget the other guy's name. So is Peter Andrew Lincoln or Chiwetel yeah. Ejiofor? Chiwetel Ejiofor. I don't remember Andrew Lincoln's name. Andrew Lincoln is Mark. Okay. Mark. What He's is Kira the, Knightley's name? Uh... Juliet. So Juliet is marrying Peter. Mark is Peter's best friend. 
the first time we see any of them, Chiwetel Ejiofor clearly getting married is talking to Andrew Lincoln. And they're talking about the, like, Brazilian prostitutes being a mistake. And then said, like, oh, yeah, it was a mistake. Like, also, they were dudes. And I'm like, it doesn't say he didn't do anything with the Brazilian prostitutes. So are these guys bi? That's a good question. Yes, but clearly the movie is using it for humor. So I did clock that seven minutes in, it had made a transphobic sex worker's joke. And they're talking about this in the context of that had been his bachelor party, his stag night. And they're at the wedding and Peter is saying to Mark, promise me there will be no surprises. And Mark says, of course not. I promise. And Keira Knightley walks down the aisle. Mark is filming all of this. And then as they've finished, they're going to walk out. Suddenly this random like flash mob choir Start singing. Including a flash mob, like, band with trombones. Trombones and a flute. Sprinkled throughout the audience. Starts playing. It's so tacky. Love by the Beatles. And I would think that this is super unrealistic, but I was actually at a wedding a couple months ago where, as a surprise, the groom's dad had brought in a Beatles cover band in full Sgt. Pepper's outfits. So surprise Beatles wedding music, I can no longer say would never happen. This just anticipated the trend of everyone dancing down the aisle and doing nonsense like that for YouTube watches. So Instead in this one, he takes all the stuff he shoots on his digital camcorder and converts it to VHS. Because he has a VHS tape later, and the camcorder he's using is too small for that to be included. So he clearly converted to VHS to watch it more. Yeah, he had to reverse engineer somehow a DVD to VHS machine. Well, it could have been recording on micro VHS tapes. That's possible. And then what you do is you plug that into your VCR, and you put in a blank tape, and you should be able to record onto it. Have you done this? Yeah. What a wild transition time for technology. So the next shot we see is at the reception, Mark is sitting and looking kind of bummed out. And Laura Linney, Sarah, who we'll get to in a couple points, walks up to him and says, do you love him? She says, hi, I'm Laura Linney. Welcome to Masterpiece Classic. And that's how we transition into... (laughs) And then, weirdly, we're just watching Wuthering Heights for the rest of the movie. (laughs) Except occasionally Liam Neeson and his son show up. With Titanic. (laughs) It's a Cloud Atlas thing, but it just keeps jumping to different movies. <laughs> where we jump from Love Actually to Wuthering Heights to Titanic. That's literally what this movie was written to be. Yeah. Though. So she says, do you love him? And he says, what? No. And she says, well, I just thought I would ask the blunt question because he's been staring kind of longingly at Peter. And still sort of like holding the video camera, staring at them, but holding it like kind of below the waist. Like he doesn't want to be noticed. So then we get the sense it's about a week later. Peter calls Mark and says, hey, Juliet wants to ask you something. Be nice. And what she wants is some of his camcorder footage because they got the wedding tape back and there was something wrong with the camera. So it's all blue. And she says, I just want a shot of me in a dress that isn't turquoise. And he says, oh, well, I don't know. I don't know where it is. Yeah. I lost the tape. I'm not watching it late at night in a dark room with some candles lit every <laughs> and night by myself. like, wanders around his place a little bit and finds a VHS tape, which, again, he would have had to make well, this is- clearly labeled. No, that's only one week yeah. before Christmas. No, that's two, we- two she weeks She shows up Christmas. unannounced at his flat with banoffee pie, 
wearing a denim hat. And a velour <laughs> mid-trip zip-up sweatshirt. His sweater is also sweatshirt. not This outfit is so hideous. <laughs> I just couldn't, I couldn't see anything beyond the velour. So she shows up and says, I just wondered if you had found it. I wanted to look around. And he says, oh, well, I looked around when you first called and couldn't find it. And she very easily finds a tape labeled Peter and Juliet Wedding puts it in the VCR and the first couple shots are of her and they're great and she's kind of joking about it and then she starts to realize they're all shots of her. Like pretty close up kind of intimate sensual shots. And that's when she opens his closet (laughs) and inside there's a bunch of printouts of her face with the eyes scratched out. And then there's a, a sculpture of her made out of gum that she had chewed that he had collected. That he'd managed to get some of the feathers from her wedding day to be her hair and eyelashes. I'm coming for you <laughs> is written in red paint on the wall. Or is it paint? Oh, it's from blood scraped off every band-aid she ever threw away. <laughs> oh, ooh. Oh, God. That's gross. Ew. <laughs> so... She says to him, I don't understand. You never talk to me. You always talk to Peter. You don't like me. And he starts to leave and then turns around and says, it's a self-preservation thing, you know, and then storms out of his apartment. It's cold outside and he kind of does multiple double takes trying to decide if he needs to go back to get a sweater. But he is just so mortified that she's found out that he's, I guess, in love with her that he can't be there and we just see him walk away. So it sounds like people thought that he hated her from the beginning. Yes. So when did he fall in love with her? That's what I want to know. This plot line makes It's really unclear. And the fact that she's like, I still thought you hated me. And it's like, well, what has his move been this whole time? Just to like lurk grumpily on the margins of their relationship? My assumption, trying to make sense of it, is Peter starts dating her, brings her to meet the friends. Mark is immediately taken with her because- She's attractive and is worried about seeming like he's making a move. So he's a little colder than necessary when he first meets her because he doesn't want to accidentally flirt with her. And then he likes her more and more as they spend time together. And so he does more and more of that. All of this makes sense, but none of it is in the movie. Yeah, I'm coming up with this on the spot right now, but this is always something that has bothered me in this movie is how he fell in love with her because... It sounds like they have never actually had a conversation with each other. So I wonder if some of it, too, is he's just fetishizing his best friend's happiness and it's not actually her. She's just the object of it. And he's jealous of that. I believe that. Again, this should have been explored in the movie. So the next scene between them is the famous scene where he shows up and plays the carols with the posters. And yeah, he knocks on the door again. and he's like, he holds up a sign that's like, tell Chiwetel Ejiofor it's carolers. And she says it and he hits a speaker to play Christmas carols. And he just has all these cards being like, Christmas is a time to be honest and I'm in love with you. Which, that's not a thing. Anyway. No, it's a time to be polite with your family. This is... Like the most iconic scene in this movie. So I assumed this plot line would be further fleshed out, but it is maybe one of the least fleshed out in the movie. It makes no sense. Yeah, I would say it kind of makes sense as iconic just in that it is a standard Richard Curtis dramatic moment. Yeah, I just assumed with that being the big moment that more would be behind it so I'd feel more emotions, but I felt 
nothing. Yeah. It's also grossly inappropriate. Yeah, it's grossly inappropriate and creepy. But again, I just was like, I don't understand why other people are on board with this because there's nothing there. And then after he goes through all of his signs, he's walking away. Side note, she is in this scene wearing a short sleeve sweater. It's never clear how cold it is in with, this movie. It might also have feathers on it. I'm not sure. Well, the feathers are for warmth. She <laughs> runs after him and kisses him, which I... It's so unearned. It's so unearned. Like, this guy has been mean to you forever. Suddenly, you realize he has all this footage of you. He shows up and says, by the way, like, I'm in love with you as your husband, ostensibly his best friend, is sitting in the other room. And your response to that is, oh, I should kiss him. What? But the thing is, they're both white and her husband is black. So clearly we should root for the white people to get together. I was glad in Red Nose Day, actually, that they established that Kira Knightley and Chiwetel Ejiofor were still together. And very happy. But the other thing, I don't think this movie wants us to root for them to get together. It's really unclear. No, that's the other thing is I assumed that since it was the big Richard Curtis gesture, we should be on board. But I don't think he's on board with this. It makes no sense. As opposed to like the Himesh Patel big gesture in Yesterday, where we're clearly supposed to be on board, even though it is clearly awful. (laughs) Exactly. It's so bad. That seems to be his vibe. Is Yesterday Richard Curtis? He wrote it. He didn't direct it. Oh, okay. That checks out. Anyway, that's basically it on that one. So next point. Keep rolling. Next, we move on to the one where I think- We are halfway through these. This makes even less sense, honestly. So I don't really understand who Jamie is. Or Colin Firth. Who Aurelia is, or what their relationship is, or why they end up together. But they do. Bonoit Aurelia. Bonoit, Jamie. Bonita Aurelia. Bilvir Aki. So Jamie is Colin Firth, right? Yes. Yes, And he is friends with... I'm going to get my chart. You keep talking. Okay. He is friends with um, Peter and and Juliet because he's going to their wedding. And his girlfriend, we see she's sick. And so she's not going to come with him. But it's right around the corner. And she says, you know, go ahead without me. Have fun. Give them my best. But he comes home early and she's banging his brother. Yeah. He sees his brother and he says, oh, we need to talk about mom's birthday next week. And then he hears a shout from the other room that's like, come on, big boy. I want to have sex two more times before Jamie gets home or something like that. And so that is how that relationship ends. He escapes to the French countryside because he is distraught. And so he's going to work on his crime novel and I don't know if this is like a service he clearly knows the woman who finds Aurelia but some French woman has found Aurelia to come keep house for him while he's there and she's this Portuguese like yes neither of them speak French well Aurelia does not speak English Jamie does not speak Portuguese and so obviously they fall in love with each other in the span of like four days Yeah, because we have this, like, weak structure, and we're through a couple of the weeks by the time he goes there, and then, like, another week before Aurelia is hired. And basically, that's literally it. Like, there are little things with the pages, but it's literally that they are together, they fall in love, they learn each other's languages in the course of a day, he goes to Portugal, and 
proposes marriage. <laughs> yeah, so there's one scene where he's driving her home, like, after she cleans up his place, and he's like, ah, you know, I wish that you uh, spoke English so I could talk to you and, and flirt with you and stuff. And then she says in Portuguese, like, ah, I wish you spoke Portuguese so I could tell you how hot you are. It's been five days. Yeah, and he says something about, like, oh, you know, like, best part of my day is driving you home. And she's like, the worst part of my day is when you leave me at my home. And then he's working outside, and a bunch of his papers blow into the lake, and she gets in the lake and is helping him get his papers. And he falls in love with her because she has a tattoo. Yes. And then, as Mark said, he learns Portuguese, chases her down, and proposes marriage to her. The other thing that I don't get is he goes to his family's house on Christmas Eve. Like, Uncle Jamie shows up, brings presents. He walks in the door. He says, I need to go. Three of his nieces go, I hate Uncle Jamie, which is great. And then he's able to get from London Gatwick Airport to Marseille in like two hours total? How? Is he operating? What's got? How do you? What? What's how has Colin here? Firth not been in a Harry Potter movie? Imagine we've already thrown sense out the window at this point, Rachel. There's literally no point thinking about this. Haven't we made ten Harry Potter movies? How has Colin Firth been in none of them? The real thing that bugged me is at this point I was already kind of ready for the movie to be over, but his brother was at the party and nothing happened between them. And I thought that was kind of weird. Was his brother at the family house? Yes, because I looked. Okay, I have a lot of trouble recognizing faces, and I also looked and couldn't tell. Yeah, he was way in the back and looked uncomfortable, so I thought there'd be a confrontation, but... Nope. Wait a minute. According to this chart, Liam Neeson's dead wife was also named Joanna? Yes. They mentioned that. I didn't pick up on that. Yeah. When Sam first says something about Joanna, Daniel says, oh, her name's also Joanna. Oh, I missed that. And also at the funeral, he says something about like when Joanna and I were first talking about. Yeah. But yeah. So see, it's cute because they each had their one true... Joanna love. That's weird. Is that hereditary? Actually, I... Is it like in uh, The Thin Man? How whether you're a murderer is hereditary? The name of the person you fall in love with is also hereditary? cousin father-in-law has the same name as him. Wow. Yeah. So this is a thing that happens. I mean, it makes sense. There's only so many names. Right. And it's a relatively common name. But yes. Both my cousins and Joanna. So yeah, so Colin Firth gets engaged. To a woman he can barely speak to. And that she has learned English just in case. Apparently in like three days. It'd be so much easier. Like, it'd be so easy for them to just be like, I want to go out with you. But no, they have to get married. My other question is, the guy says that she's his best waiter, but she doesn't speak French and they are in Marseille. I don't think she'd be a good waiter. Learning English is a good business decision. For the most part. So it kind of makes sense for her to be like, hey, I might as well learn it. But learn French if you are a waiter in Marseille. True. I, Marseille does, I believe, have a large Portuguese community, which I think is how she can get away with it. But that doesn't make sense because presumably it's not only Portuguese people going to this restaurant. But maybe all she does is bring the food out and she's good at that. But that's more of a server, and he says she's my best waitress, specifically. That's true. I I don't know. The other thing I want to know is, has she been working two jobs this entire time? Or has she become his best waitress in the time since she stopped being Jamie's housekeeper, so it's been like three days? I believe she's been working two jobs, because whenever he drives her home, it is light out. So it's conceivable she's a waiter at night. Or it's just she took a couple weeks off for higher pay at this live-in job. Like, that. Eh, okay, again, fine. Give me a logical explanation for this movie. Again, sense is out the window. I literally stopped paying attention to things like that at the end. So, All right. point six. Keep moving. Laura Linney, welcome to Sarah. Masterpiece Classics. I don't have to go. Right. Good. 
I mean... No, 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 no that's, that's good. So, just, um, would you excuse me for one second? So, this part of the movie is weird, because her boss is overinvested in her sex life. Yes, Alan Rickman is her boss, and he, like, sits her down, and he's like, so, how long have you worked here? And she's like, two years, four months, whatever. And he's like, and how long have you been in love with Carl? And she gives the same answer, minus 30 minutes. And Alan Rickman is like, everyone knows you need to bone him. Yeah, and I mean, Carl's hot. Like, get it, girl. So, basically, the plot of this one is, she's super awkward around Carl, and then... At the Christmas party, they get drunk and make out. But then it took a real twist I did not see coming. Yeah, so she brings him home with her. He drives her home. They kiss on her stoop. And she says, you know what? Do you want to come in? And... It's really cute. You can see her. She says, you know, just give me a second. She goes in and she's just so excited that she jumps around for a couple seconds. And then she says, give me 10 more seconds and runs upstairs and tries to clean her room up, hide her teddy bear, like, you know, make her room look appropriate for a man to come. So he comes. They're making out on her bed. Clothes are being removed. And her phone starts ringing. And we've heard her phone ring obnoxiously a couple other times in the movie. But she says, sorry, I need to get that. And what we discover is that she has a brother who is dealing with mental illness and he is having a very paranoid episode and is calling her. And so she's talking him through like, yes, I'm sure the Pope is very good at exorcisms, but we can't get him on the phone right now. How about, you know, you calm down, go to bed. We can talk about this in the morning and hangs up and turns back to Carl and says, sorry. And he says, no, it's okay. Life is full of complications. And she explains, it's my brother. He's sick. Our parents aren't around anymore. It's just the two of us over here because they're American. They start making out again and the phone rings again. And Carl says to her, will it make him better? And she says, no. And he says, well, why don't you not answer it then? But she does. So we can make out. Yeah, but she does. And it sounds like like her brother, we can't hear his side of the phone, but based on what she's saying, it sounds like her brother is talking about hurting himself. And she says, I can come there if you need me to. And Carl looks kind of frustrated and just leaves. And she goes over to her brother's where he lives. And he clearly is having a difficult time. And... Then we flash forward to Christmas Eve. They're both at the office. Why are they being made to work on Christmas Eve? Because Alan Rickman sucks, apparently. Especially, I mean, yes. He does, but earlier he seems to be portrayed as, like, the cool, fun boss who's invested right. in your life. But also yeah, he's going to sit you down and yeah. tell you to bone. I guess, to be fair, I don't get Christmas Eve off, technically, but the office closes two hours early, and it's very dark out when they're leaving. Um, but Carl is walking out. I will say, I live in the UK right now. It could be, conceivably, 3.30. Okay. <laughs> it gets dark well, way too early here. That's true. <laughs> but Carl walks out. They say Merry Christmas to each other, but nothing happens. And then she is crying and calls her brother, but is clearly trying not to sound upset and says, Hi, I just want to check in. Merry Christmas. And that's the end of that one. But then she goes and visits him and they share a scarf. That's true. Yay. All right, keep moving. Point seven. We got point, point seven. Hugh Grant Prime is Minister Hugh Grant. the Prime Minister. Honestly, love it. We should make more comedies about Hugh Grant as Prime Minister. Not what I didn't understand. more dramas about him murdering his gay lover. Yes. What I didn't understand is that they make multiple comments throughout this about how old he is. He was in his 30s when this was filmed. Yeah, he's young. That To be a prime minister, that's young. They're mostly referencing that he's in his 30s and unmarried, more than that he's like 
old, old. But at, at least that's point, how I took it. Emma Thompson says to Natalie, you know, watch out. You would have been just his type 20 years ago. When he's 15? Yeah. I guess. Maybe he's supposed to be playing old. And like the, the radio set calls him a golden oldie at one point. And this is Natalie, who's my, um, who's my uh, uh, catering manager. Oh. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> catering manager, watch out. Keeps his hands off you. 20 years ago, you'd have been just his type. I'll be very careful. Don't try something, sir, just because it's Christmas. So we've got our Prime Minister, Hugh Grant. He gives a big speech at the beginning, a voiceover, about how love actually is all around us. We lead with a title drop. And he is coming onto the job, and he's introduced to the staff, who are all, like, old people, except for Natalie, played by Martine McCutcheon. And he immediately is like, look at this lady. Yeah, but then she accidentally swears in front of him and calls him David instead of Sir. And she's like, oh man, young and hip. And I'm surprised she doesn't fall over because she seems to be that type in a rom-com. We do need to see her in a big sweater. Except they probably wouldn't put her in a big sweater because apparently it's a huge plot point that she's really fat. Which she isn't. Not at all. But and it's this movie has such a weird attitude toward weight. And also age. Also age. It's a weird movie. I feel like they wrote parts with people in mind and didn't get those people and didn't change the words. Except that Richard Curtis has said that he wrote this part for Martine McCutcheon and called the character Martine in the early drafts and then just changed it for the auditions so she wouldn't think she'd already been cast. Poor Martine. There's so many parts where they talk about like how massive her thighs are and she looks like a like i wouldn't say she's super skinny but she looks like a healthy woman i wonder if this is supposed to be a joke but just too many people say it so delivered so weird and the other thing is it's mainly with her but there are other points in the movie where really weird unnecessary weight comments are made like at one point part of how emma thompson is shown to be a little insecure about her marriage which we'll get to in the next point is she talks about how she feels fat and like like there are a lot yeah, it's not of weight good. comments in this movie and like aurelia gives jamie a hard time about like getting chubby and it's there there are a lot of jokes it's rough but anyway so there's like some flirting between hugh grant and natalie where like at one point he's grumping around downing street and he's like ah who do you have to screw around here to get a cup of tea and a proper biscuit and then natalie walks in oh no with the tea cart yep so basically they have and he starts interrogating her like oh yeah like where do you live you live with your husband your boyfriend and she's like no i'm i'm single yeah my boyfriend and i just split up because he broke up with me because i was too fat that is actually what she says it's so bad but then they basically continue to flirt until the U.S. president arrives and President Billy Bob Thornton sexually harasses her. For which she apologizes multiple times. Yeah. Hugh Grant walks into a room and sees Billy Bob Thornton like kissing her. And then they go to their press conference and we get a press conference clearly written by like a liberal British guy frustrated with the Blair government. Yeah. He stands up to the president for trying to take things from England that should belong to England, but it's clearly coded as, you dirty perv, get your hands off the girl I love. And people are really into it, and they're like, yeah, the prime minister's sticking up for British independence. There were actually a weirdly large amount of news stories when Blair announced he was stepping down. That's like, ah, you know, like, the Gordon Brown government might be a real Love Actually moment where the UK doesn't go along with American foreign policy quite as much. Oof. And they used that phrase repeatedly. Yeah. So anyway, the logical response to this is the prime minister has Natalie fired. Quote, redistributed. 
But then I don't know what changes. All of a sudden he's he gets he gets a card from her. Where oh, she that's talks right. About, I'm Being so in love sorry with him about what happened because which is not hers I'm, to apologize for. No, I'm actually she says like dear sir and then it's crossed out and says dear David. Like I feel like such a fool. Yeah. Um, I'm actually yours. XXX. You're Natalie. Yeah. And he reads that and he's like, okay, I need to go find her on the dodgy end of all I think of is Wadsworth, but that's because it's Radio Wadsworth. It's Wadsworth. Really Mac interview. I think she Wadsworth. says it's Wadsworth. Oh, so is that where it does the radio? Who knows? Interview. Maybe that's supposed really to bad. be a connection, but maybe. Who cares? Anyway, so he like knocks on doors until he finds her. He runs into Mia, who we'll talk about in the next point along the way. Mm-hmm. He's Carol's good King Wenceslas because these eight-year-olds insist that he sing a carol for them, and apparently that's his go-to. Good Carol. It is, but not the one that you use in that situation. Maybe it's a way to get the kids to stop wanting you to sing carols. Ooh, smart. It is a good Hugh Grant carol in particular. Yeah. yeah. So he finds her and all of her family is there at the door because they're leaving for a Christmas pageant, which then the prime minister of the United Kingdom goes to Tags along. <laughs> an elementary school Christmas pageant. And, and it turns out his niece and nephew are in which, the pageant. Drive, like, I know you're the prime minister, but wouldn't you know where you're? I guess maybe not. But I was just like, well, wouldn't you recognize the school? No, because they said um, it's the first time all the schools have come together to do the pageant. Oh, I missed that line and so i took it at like it's taking place at right. the school that's around the corner but they talk about how there are other schools from the area that yeah. are part of it too okay so then he and natalie are making out backstage that does explain why they had to get to the lobsters and octopus well first they have a really awkward uh conversation in the car with the octopus sitting between the two of them about they're trying to flirt but it's hard when there's a seven-year-old in an octopus costume literally between you that does make it tough yeah he keeps trying to leave but she brings him inside and then they're backstage and then they kiss and then the curtain goes up and everyone sees him and then they start applauding because it's the prime minister (laughs) yeah and then in the postscript he comes back into heathrow and she jumps on him and kisses him and it's and in the sequel they're still together. Oh. And we didn't mention this because it's not necessarily romance related, but he has such an epic solo dance party. And then in the sequel, he is trying to do a similar thing and falls down the stairs. Because he's older and yeah. he's not as nimble. Uh, he's the Natalie now. Yeah, he's charming because he's clumsy. Yep. <laughs> anyway. All right, last romance. Okay, I feel like this is the meatiest romance yeah. of the movie, which is why I saved it for last, so that we can all be exhausted as we try to discuss it. Good. I am so in the room. A classic fool. Yes, but you've also made a fool out of me. You've made the life I lead foolish too. We start out, Alan Rickman, who is Laura Linney and Carl's boss, is organizing this Christmas party and asks Mia, who's played by Heike Makach. If she can try to find somewhere to have it. And she says, oh, my friend who is Mark owns this gallery. We can have it there. There are a lot of dark corners for doing dark deeds. And he says something about. So people can get drunk and make out at your work function. Yeah. You know, oh, is that what you'll be doing? And she says, oh, well, I'll just be hanging around the mistletoe hoping to be kissed. And she's hardcore flirting with him. In the meantime, he is married to Emma Thompson. They have two kids, and it seems like they are content together, if not 
actively joyful. Yeah, it's not depicted as a relationship on the rocks. No, it seems like it's a very comfortable, like, maybe some of the sparks are gone, but they presumably have been married for quite a while at this point, and they seem happy with their lives, even if it's not, you know, like, the height of passion. But Mia is young and dangerous, and she is really flirting, and we get to the Christmas party, and... She's wearing this like very skimpy red dress with red devil horns on her head and a weird outfit for, for a Christmas party. Christmas party. Although it did kind of fit the theme of the art gallery, I guess. Yeah, so that's maybe fair. she was going with that. But she dances with Alan Rickman and Sarah, Laura Linney, makes a comment to Emma Thompson at one point about, oh, well, I guess he has to dance with everyone, doesn't he? And she says, yeah, some more than others because they're dancing. And Alan Rickman says to Mia, you look very pretty. And she says, it's all for you, sir. And then fast forward to after the Christmas party, Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman are at home, like getting ready for bed and Emma Thompson says to him you know Mia's very pretty and he says oh really I didn't notice and she says well yeah she is you know be be careful with that one so then the next day a couple days later Alan Rickman leaves to go Christmas shopping and as he's leaving Mia says are you getting me anything and he says well I don't know are you getting a weird question to ask and she says I thought I made it clear the other night when it comes to me you can have everything and he just kind of walks out but then calls her and says what do you want do you need you know some stationery a new stapler and she says I don't want something I need I want something I want and she asked for something specifically like sparkly and fun so Alan Rickman goes to the jewelry section and he buys a necklace and Rowan Atkinson takes forever to wrap it Which is important because Emma Thompson is there getting gifts for their mothers and she's going to show up at any time. Yep. And so then he has to ditch it for now, but he does go back and buys it. And it's unfortunate to say the least. Rowan Atkinson originally appeared in much more of the movie. And at one point in the script, he was a Christmas angel flitting through people's lives. I get that. I got that vibe. Because they left it in at the airport and he was clearly supposed to be a old man in the princess switch character. Right. And like there he's leaving. So it's like, oh yeah, he's like done his work of Christmas love. So he buys the necklace. Emma Thompson finds it in his coat pocket and is like, oh, he sprung big for me this year. This is so nice. It's so different from normal. And their family clearly gets a scarf. And their family clearly has a tradition where like on Christmas Eve, everybody opens one present. And Emma Thompson's like, I want that one. And she picks up one that looks like this jewelry box. And she opens it and it's a Joni Mitchell CD. Because earlier in the movie, Alan Rickman had heard her listening to Joni Mitchell and said, oh, why are you listening to this? And she'd said, you know, Joni Mitchell is who taught your cold English wife how to feel. And so when she opens it, he says, you know, it's for your emotional education. And I also got you the traditional scarf, but I just thought this would be special. And it's the sort of thing that is so heartbreaking because if she didn't know about the necklace, she probably would find this very thoughtful. Like it's drawing back on a conversation that they had. So clearly he's paying attention. I think it is a very caring gift, actually. And that's why it is so poignant because if you didn't have all the information that you do and if you have only the information that he thinks she has, this is a really nice sentiment. But in fact, it's a CD and he's saying, you know, your emotional education, the cold English wife thing, I think in contrast to this young, really sexy woman that he's having the affair with and is buying jewelry for also side note the necklace was not that pretty no it's pretty ugly it was only 200 pounds yeah but this sets up a contrast that wouldn't exist 
otherwise. And so it goes from being something really sweet to being something that is just kind of heartbreaking. And she leaves the room and is playing the CD in her bedroom and just trying to pull herself together and does it because she has to go back out to take the kids to their Christmas play. Yeah. And so they go to the Christmas play. And at the end, she says, basically, what would you do if you were me? And explains like, I found the necklace. I don't even know if you're sleeping with her. I don't know if you're in love with her, but you have embarrassed us. You've ruined everything. I hate you, but polite. One thing I really like about this scene when they're having the confrontation is he says to her, you know, oh God, I'm the classic fool. And she says, but you've also made a fool out of me and you've made the life I lead foolish. And I think that that is such a good framing of this situation where, again, it's the sort of thing where if this had not happened, she probably would have felt that she had this sort of idyllic life and that doesn't mean there are never any problems, but overall things are good. And then he does that. It has nothing to do with her, but suddenly her life is upended by his actions and she has to feel foolish for having lived in this contentment because it turns out that that was not enough but she had no way to know that and I think that that is such a well done framing of this situation of a marriage that wasn't in crisis but now it is and so she has to wonder like what should I have seen that I wasn't seeing when in reality there's probably nothing she could have done yeah and so in the epilogue they are picking him up at the airport her and her kids and She basically says, I guess it's good to have you back, something along those lines. And it's kind of unclear if they're still a couple or not. Yeah. We don't get an update on them because Alan Rickman had died by the time they made the Red Nose Day, actually, and Emma Thompson declined to be in it without him. Which makes sense. You would have had to invent something entirely new for her character, too. Yeah. So that's this movie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Dug into a lot here. Yeah. Um, every week we rate the believability of a movie's romance on a 10-point scale from zero, where zero is we believe nothing, to 10, where we believe all of it. Where do we rate the romance of Love Actually? So, question. Are we really only thinking about the romance, and to what extent can we divorce the romance from some of the other absurdity that happens in this universe, like being able to learn a language in a week? Is that part of the romance, or is that its own? I think that's part of the romance. I think you have to consider the believability of that. Even divorcing that from it, though, like, if we were to accept the reality of this world, I would still rate it pretty low. Well, yeah. Like, the Jamie Aurelia thing is still nonsense, even if it is possible to learn a language that fast. Okay, so I'm gonna give it a three. I was gonna go with two. So why a three? I think most of it is unbelievable. That said, I think it is built on nuggets of very believable things. For example, the Alan Rickman, Emma Thompson, all of that I think is entirely believable, actually, um, including the time frame because he is being kind of impulsive in this. Um, I think other than learning the drums, the Sam and Joanna thing seems like a very realistic 11 year old romance. And even he commits multiple felonies along the way <laughs> at the airport oh oh i forgot about that part but, but he is a killer gymnast if you watch the and deleted the other scenes thing is like yes he's committing these felonies but he's also 11 so while i don't necessarily believe they wouldn't be able to catch him i do believe that he would not understand the gravity of what he is doing and why this is something he should not be doing so like and the laura linney plotline as well i think is very believable so and john and judy 
and John and Judy. So I think that there are some that are entirely believable and in the case of Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson, really nicely portrayed. And I think that the fact that there are others that are so absurd doesn't necessarily mean that we have to fully discount that there are some of these where even in our universe, it would make sense. Yeah, I guess that's fair. You've convinced me. I'm a three. Yeah, me too. Good work. All cool. Right. Thank you. All right. <laughs> So we don't have time to talk about whether all of these people are dateable or not. So just if you had to pick one person in love actually to date, who would it be? Mark? Probably Judy. She just seems seems very nice and professional and good at her job. I think I would go with Liam Neeson. Me too. Obviously, there's some like grief that he's working through and need to be respectful of that. But we also didn't mention that it's hinted at that he starts a relationship toward the end of this movie, you know, five weeks after his wife died. But he clearly cares very deeply about the people in his life. Sam is his stepson and he still is entirely devoted to him. And he also has robust friendships. We can see that he's good friends with Emma Thompson and also he has a cool accent. Yeah, I think Liam Neeson seems like a good dad, like very emotionally available to his kid and very interested and engaged with his kid's life and his kid's emotional state. He also watches Titanic with his kid, which I think is great. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. Yeah, the kid part is one of the reasons I don't want to date Liam Neeson. Sure. Fair. This is so many couples. Do you think any of them will stay together? Um... Mm, well, we know Sam and Joanna do. Yeah, we have a bunch of answers. We know Juliet and Peter. I would actually Red Nose Day. Actually, besides Peter and Juliet, I would say no to all of them. Mm. Not taking the sequel into account. I would say John John and Judy. Judy. If they hadn't gotten engaged in the last scene, I would say John and Judy. Maybe, um, Natalie and David. I think not because. She is his employee. Yeah, that's such a yikesy situation. Yeah. yeah. And Alan Rickman, Emma Thompson, no. I think I think they might. I think they It's possible. Yeah. I think it's possible. Aurelian Jamie. Absolutely not. No. No. Absolutely not. <laughs> oh, and Colin and whoever he's with, absolutely not. Yeah. Now, many yes. of the movies we have discussed on this podcast have been turned into stage musicals. God no. Should Love Actually be made into a stage musical? This could that not. That would be so dizzying yeah. to try to follow. It could not be a coherent musical. Especially because on stage you're further from people and so characters need to be more visually distinct. Ooh. Yeah. No, it would just, it wouldn't work. The amount of fast cuts you have to do between scenes to keep it engaging and not, I mean, you could make it into an anthology of all of the scenes, but then they'd have to be even shorter. Yeah. What I would if anything, it would be like company. Like you would wind up doing like little vignettes about different relationships. What I would like is for it to be a musical purely so I can see what Juliet's wardrobe looks like in the musical version. But why? They hit perfection in the movie. It's not gonna be topped. Can't improve. I don't think it could be topped, but I think that it could be matched and I wanna see it happen. All right. Well, I think that about does it for Love Actually. Yeah, next week we are delving into the world of puppet monstrosities and Bruce Springsteen-esque covers of Frosty the Snowman. We're watching Jack Frost, the 1998 family comedy with Michael Keaton, not the 1997 horror movie of the same name. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular really help other people to find the show. All right, last question. What's the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? Because there's probably several. So I know that it's not 
technically dating advice, but I might go with what I said in the Titanic episode, which is to have a dance party because I certainly liked Hugh Grant a lot more after that scene. So I think have a dance party. Um, I will say we said John and Judy is a nice little relationship. And, like, I don't think it's believable that the director would need John to massage her boobs for the scene. But I think the fact that he is attentive to what she is saying and ways that she is uncomfortable and is looking out for her by warming up his hands is a good thing. So pay attention. That was going to be mine. Um, <laughs> so going to think here. You know, learning a new language doesn't hurt. And it only expands your dating pool as long as you try. And it's try, very easy. As long as you try to do it before falling in love, I'd say. All right. Well, there you go. Until next time, I am a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. This is shit, isn't it? Yep, solid gold shit, Maestro. <laughs>